Our purpose here in mortal life is to return to and become like Heavenly Father. And one of the roles of Jesus Christ is to be an example of that purpose for us to follow. President Boyd K. Packer once said that Jesus has been described as a philosopher, an economist, a social reformer, and many other things. But more than these, the Savior was a teacher. If you were to ask, what did Jesus have as an occupation? There is only one answer. He was a teacher. It is he who should be our ideal. It is he who is the master teacher. If Christ's major occupation was a teacher, as President Packer said, our ability to teach and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others is a major part of fulfilling our mortal purposes. Becoming a better teacher is something we should all be striving for, regardless of our current callings or abilities. Today on Answers with Amy, we will be talking about the question, how can I become a better gospel teacher? I love that quote from President Packer that we used in the introduction, and I want to add this quote by Elder Bruce R. McConkie, who said, Perfect worship is emulation. We honor those who we imitate. The most perfect way of worship is to be holy as Jehovah is holy. It is to be pure as Christ is pure. It is to do the things that enable us to become like the Father. The course is one of obedience. Sometimes I think we think of callings that take us away from our own classes and into other organizations as taking away from our ability to be spiritually fed ourselves. But when I think about how Elder McConkie points out that perfect worship is emulation, and President Packer says that Jesus's occupation was being a teacher, it helps me to see that when we accept opportunities to teach, whether in a calling in our or in our families, or in more informal situations, we're being given the opportunity to participate in a pure form of worship. We're being given the opportunity to more fully emulate the Savior. And in fact, I think we can safely say that if we choose not to increase our ability to teach in Christ-like ways, we will not succeed in becoming like Christ. Now, I fully recognize that teaching is something that some people are more comfortable with than others, but I think each of us, regardless of our current abilities, should and can grow in our current skills. There are so many good resources out there and so many incredible teachers, and so sometimes it can start to all feel a little overwhelming. So the trick is to find one or two things that the Spirit is prompting you to work on, and don't worry about the rest for right now. So here are things I personally like to focus on. The first one is to remember that I'm teaching a lesson and not a presentation. Or as Elder Schweitzer, Schweitzer, I don't even, I don't know if I said that right. He said, true disciples desire to inspire the hearts of men, not just impress them. And I learned this during my very brief stint as a primary chorister. There are a lot of Facebook groups and Pinterest boards dedicated to that calling. And they showed all these beautiful posters and all these games and activities that you could do with the kids. And since those kinds of things are things that I'm not good at, I started to feel really overwhelmed and like I wasn't enough in my calling. However, as I served in that calling, I began to realize that the primary kids didn't need some elaborate presentation to be willing to sing. Mostly what they needed was to be seen and to be appreciated and to felt like they were a part of what was happening. 
So there's the, the same kind of Pinterest boards and Facebook groups for pretty much every calling. And they're great resources to use if you're looking for something specific, but we shouldn't let them overwhelm us. And we shouldn't base our perceptions of what our calling should be on those Pinterest boards or Facebook groups or Instagram posts. Uh, President, well, he was elder at the time, Henry B. Eyring said, those called by the prophet to assure the correctness of the doctrine taught in the church review every word, every picture, every diagram in that curriculum which you receive. We can unlock the power of the curriculum simply by acting on our faith that it is inspired of God. Sticking with the content of the curriculum as well as its sequence will unlock our unique teaching gifts, not stifle them. I really love that quote because basically it says it's absolutely okay for your lesson to be 100% based on the scriptures, whatever manual is appropriate for the situation you're teaching in, and a good class discussion. You don't need all the extra stuff. Once you're comfortable in a calling, you may find that you can use that extra stuff without it getting overwhelming or without it uh, becoming too much for you. But especially when a calling is brand new, stick to the resources that are given you. Um, this leads me to the next thing I want to focus on, which is to use the scriptures whenever possible. There have been a few times where I've sat through entire Sunday school lessons without a single scripture being read. And we've talked a lot about them, but we never use them directly. Or the teacher would ask a question like, so tell me what happened next. And since shockingly, not every member of the church has the entire standard works memorized, uh, we didn't always know what was next. And so something like a subtle shift in the phrasing of the question to be more like, let's look at verse whatever to see what happens next can help the class be much more engaged because they feel more confident in answering the questions. Uh, which brings us to our next point. How you ask a question is so important. This is something that's made a huge difference to me. I had heard a lot about asking the right questions. You'll hear tips like don't ask yes or no questions, ask open-ended questions, but don't go fishing. If you don't know what fishing means, it basically means you're playing guess what the teacher is thinking because they're looking for a specific answers. So I had heard all those things about asking good questions, but I didn't realize how and when I asked the question would make such a big difference in class participation. For some reason, I don't know why, it's really hard to be the first person to talk in a class. And the longer the class has gone without talking or participating, the harder it gets to get them to start. So it's okay to start the class with something seemingly unrelated or a story or a discussion. When I taught seminary, I would often let my students lead me on a tangent about something random and they often felt like they were getting away with something, but I was totally aware of what was happening. And we really did have some completely random discussions. These conversations, for the most part, would be like less than five or 10 minutes. But the time that we spent breaking the ice and becoming more familiar with each other would make the rest of the class smoother and more efficient because the ice was broken and they were more willing to talk up, to speak up. So another way to ask, ask questions that fosters discussion is to always acknowledge the comments that are made and work them into the discussion. Now, I will admit that sometimes with really random comments, you may spend the entire time they're commenting, praying that you can find something to tie into the discussion. But if the people in your class feel like their comments matter and that you're listening to them and that you're, you value what they say, that they're contributing, they're more likely to comment. 
Uh, if you kind of dismiss comments, whether it's just because you're not thinking or because there's lots of stuff happening, sometimes people think that what you said, you didn't care about what they said and so they shut down a little bit. So always acknowledge comments. Uh, something else is to decrease the amount of dead silence in a lesson is to give your students advance notice of a question. So sometimes we'll ask a really deep question like, when have you had a time when you felt the Holy Ghost prompt you in a way that you wouldn't have normally acted? Um, and so sometimes when you just ask a question like that, the students just stare at you because it's a hard question to answer. Um, and, and there will be a lot of students who will be like, well, I know I've had an experience like that before, but I can't think of one right now. Um, and the students will want to save you, but they just, they can't think of anything. Your mind goes blank. We've all had those moments where your mind just goes blank. And the tough thing about these types of questions is that these deeper questions are the kind that can lead to a really great discussion if you can get it started. But if you don't ask it at the right time, it can also lead to a lot of really awkward dead space. So when you have a great question, you might want to ask it at the beginning of class and give them time to think about the answer before you ask them to uh, share their answers at the end. Or another option is, is you may ask the question and while they're thinking, give them an example or an experience, um, you know, from your own life or from the scriptures or from a general conference talk that kind of helps them to get their juices flowing. Because a lot of times once they hear an experience, it'll spark a memory of an experience of their own and then they have something that they can share. And the more people that share their experiences, the more people will have memories sparked and will be willing to share theirs as well. And that's when a really great discussion gets going. But again, those questions can just be a lot of dead space if you just ask them and expect an immediate answer because it takes some time to think about an experience. Another thing that's worked is uh, if you ask a question like that is to either give the students time to discuss their answer with a partner or to write their answer down uh, before they share it with a class. This gives them time to formulate or even practice articulating their thoughts before they have the pressure of sharing what uh, of sharing their thoughts with the whole class. And for a lot of people who get really nervous about sharing, the opportunity to practice what they say before they have to say it in front of everyone is really valuable. Or something else you can do is you can throw a twist in there and after they've discussed their answers with a partner, you can say, uh, instead of sharing what you you shared, I would love you if you shared what your partner said or what somebody in your group said. Um, this gives the opportunity to hear the perspective of people who don't really comment in class, but maybe they've got somebody in their group who does often comment and will share their thoughts for them. And then that helps that person feel valued because they're like, oh, that person cared enough about what I said to share it with the class and we get to hear their thoughts that they might not have normally shared. So I really like asking that too. What did your partner say or what did somebody in your group say that helped you answer that question? Um, let's face it, that, that silence after asking a question is sometimes one of our biggest fears or hurdles when it comes to teaching. So if you want more recommendations on how to ask questions to kind of avoid that, that awkward silence, I highly recommend a book called Becoming a Great Gospel Teacher by Robert Eaton and Mark Beecher. They have an entire chapter, chapter nine, and it's all about how to ask questions in a way that avoids that silence and fosters discussions. Uh, both those brethren are former or current, I don't remember, seminary and institute teachers, and they've got a lot of teaching experience, and there's a lot of great insight in that book. So the last thing I want to talk about uh, that can help us to be good gospel teachers is to be willing to be vulnerable. Uh, 
As gospel teachers, we're asked to teach perfect doctrine, but we are imperfect people. And so sometimes we struggle with that, uh, that disparity of the perfect doctrine, but being imperfect ourselves. But we don't have to pretend to be perfect in order to teach with the Spirit. So an example or where I learned this was a few years ago, I was given the opportunity to participate in a project that eventually, uh, years later, resulted in an Enzyme article that's in the February 2007 Enzyme and then the videos, some of the videos that are now on the Addressing Pornography website. However, this project required me to share on camera some very personal things about me and my family as I shared some of my thoughts and experiences on being the wife of a pornography addict. So in the days leading up to my interview and on my flight to Salt Lake, I felt confident. Like I knew this was something I was supposed to do and I could see the guidance of the Lord. And I felt really strongly that this was what I was supposed to be doing. And I had a wonderful experience while I was there working with the people from the church media department. And I felt like like I was, I had done what I was supposed to do. But on the way home, all these doubts started creeping in. I started thinking about what are people going to think about me and my family? What are people going to think about my husband? Are people still going to like us once they know all our secrets? And I started thinking about all these worst case scenarios of how people could react. And it started to be really overwhelming. I was led to a couple scriptures in 3 Nephi chapter 11, and this is where Christ first appears to the Nephites. And he said to the people, uh, this is verses 14 and 15. He said, arise and come forth unto me that you may thrust your hands into my side and also that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet, that ye may know that I am the God of Israel and the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. And it came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And this they did do, going forth one by one until they had all gone forth and did see with their eyes and did feel with their hands and did know of a surety and did bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. Whenever I had previously read these scriptures, I had always thought about what it would be like to be present in that moment, to feel the prints on the Savior's hands and feet. But after that interview, I thought more about what it would be like from Christ's perspective. I imagined what it would be like to have a vast multitude of people come up to me and feel my hands and feel my feet and thrust their hands into my side. And it really helped me realize what an intimate and personal experience the Savior was allowing these people to have with him. Uh, I mean, when I imagine people touching my hands, like a vast multitude of people touching my hands, it's not a big deal. We touch other people's hands all the time. We shake hands, we give high fives or whatever. But, you know, it's it's still still uh, an intimate experience as we've learned in this COVID era. Um, I don't want lots of people touching my feet because feet are gross. But I really, the most uncomfortable thing would be allowing thousands of people to thrust their hands into my side. I think I'm a fairly open person, but that would be really hard for me. That'd be a very uncomfortable experience. So let's shift for a moment and think about the scars themselves. Why did the Lord even have these scars? And he told us in those verses that it was so others did know of a surety and bear record that it was he of whom it was written by the prophets that should come. 
So he's saying that his scars added to people's ability to identify him. So they furthered his mission. They added to the testimony of his identity. So sometimes in mortality, we see scars as blemishes. But since these scars were strengthening his ability to testify of his purpose, they weren't blemishes. And so after my interview, after I had flown down to Salt Lake and talked about my experiences, uh, it helped me to see that my mistakes and my imperfections that were healed by the atonement of Jesus Christ are not blemishes. They enhance my ability to testify of the power of Christ. My personal experiences can testify that Christ can really heal because he's healed me and that he can really save because he saved me. As gospel teachers, there are times when we will be prompted by the Spirit to allow others, sometimes even a vast multitude, to feel our scars, to thrust their hands into our sides, to get very up close and personal with us. And we can use our weaknesses and imperfections to help others feel hope that Christ can save them too. Now, the fear we all have when we're sharing our weaknesses or imperfections or when we're being real and admitting that we're not perfect is we're worried that others will judge us. The temptation is strong to hide them um, because we don't want other people to, to know that we're real. But in my experience, incredible blessings and opportunity await us when we're courageous enough to be vulnerable. I will admit that not everyone is accepting of weaknesses and imperfections, but for the most part, people have been very kind and supportive of everything that I've shared. As a teacher, your class will be much more willing to be vulnerable if you are vulnerable first, and your willingness to be imperfectly real may help them find more strength in their own imperfections. Thank you for joining me on Answers with Amy. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to ask a question to be used in a future podcast or to share a teaching skill that has been helpful to you, connect with me on Instagram at Answers with Amy.